0: All right, everybody, just so you know, we haven't really forgotten Mother's Day. We have breakfast burritos coming. Yeah. Dads are like, yeah. So, uh, (laughs) but, you know, everybody can cash in on Mother's Day, right? If you've got a Bible, actually, we have to take offering, right? Right? Okay. We're going to take our offering right now. So if you're new to this place, you can let that just kind of pass you by. This is... uh, this is how we worship, another way we worship, making this place roll, and I'm so thankful, so generous um, you guys have been uh, this this whole year. It's been really, really cool. Um, it's going to be a little different uh, type of message today. Um, some of you might be expecting uh, a very flowery, warm Mother's Day greeting message. Um, that's not how we roll here. Um, so, and typically what ends up happening is we, we set up the preaching calendar, and we're like, oh, look at the topic for Mother's Day. That's interesting. Um, and um, sometimes, no, seriously, though, sometimes I think, um, just, to, just to share, um, my experience has been um, in church circles that, like, the pastor's wife gives the sermon on Mother's Day, and so, Angela, come on up, and... Uh, <laughs> This one would, it would be pretty quick. <laughs> Probably salty. Um, and and then um sometimes and then and then on Father's Day, um I was talking to some friends like Bruce and stuff. We're like our our experience has been like on Father's Day it's been like step up your game, dad. You deadbeat losers, you know. <laughs> we just don't we just avoid those. So, uh, um, so, this, is, this one is a little different uh, type of message because uh, sometimes if you've been around for a while, you know that a lot of times I like to go back to the Old Testament and then give you the backstory and do all this nerdery, um, and then we get to the point sometimes at the end, <laughs> okay? Today, it's a little different. Um, we're going to be jumping into a passage, um, uh, the, the next piece of this letter in 1 Corinthians, and so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it, okay? Okay. Here we go. Verse 7 of chapter 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. This is Paul writing. He says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Happy Mother's Day, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, um, in fact, in our teaching team, when we set this up a while back, there was just a big giggle um, that this was kind of where this landed. But in broad terms, I do want to have a conversation about marriage and singleness. In broad terms, and historically, culture has always celebrated marriage, um, considered that traditional marriage was... Uh, and family was emphasized. It was a big deal, and and really, especially in Jewish culture, where Paul's coming from. Okay, he's coming from a very uh, Jewish way of thinking. Family, uh, your your faith, your fields, okay, and your family were the most important thing in your life. Family was your identity. And your whole goal in life was to perpetuate more family, lineage to continue. It's a huge deal. And so for Paul to say this was actually pretty scandalous, was actually pretty, pretty much against his whole cultural upbringing. And, and the reason why I say that is I think that in our culture today, if you fast forward today, in his culture, family, there was no plan B. So if you were married, if you were single, there was like there was something in that, that was that was not fully complete. Fast forward it to our culture today. In our culture today, there's this idea, and in fact, there's study after study that more and more people believe that marriage is obsolete. That it is, in fact, many people believe it's becoming obsolete. The 18 to 24 crowd. 40 to 50% believe it is obsolete. It's not necessary. They're not even looking forward to it. And then to combat that view, here's what American churches have done. American churches have like done this full-scale marriage idolization. Okay? Where they've said if you're married, that's who we want at our church. And there's nothing wrong with marriage, there's nothing wrong with kids ministries, but I mean, kids' ministries now have, like, zip lines and, like, tunnels and all this cool stuff to attract married couples and families because, do you know what married couples and families do? They give money, right? And so there's this real emphasis on families and marriage, and there's conferences and books. And and some of you guys know we don't do married marriage, uh, like, uh, uh, series here. Um, we just feel like... The gospel influences our marriage. So we're going to do that and see how it all shakes out. Um, but churches responded. They also responded politically. Um, and then they just kind of raised the banner, the banner of marriage in our society. It turns out, though, we kind of suck at marriage. Um, and so we've kind of not really shown that marriage is the best thing in the world, Um and so it's funny because, seriously, we listen to pastors and, and, and we start to center our lives around building a home and date nights and vacations and our kids' activities. And we sacrifice more and more time and money and, and, and energy to make that happen. And some of you guys are going, wait a second, you guys, you're poking the bear right now. You're really poking at what I've done and what... Um, what I what my, built my life around. And, and the reason why I'm saying some of this is that we've, we've, in the church, we've actually pushed the single crowd and the unmarried crowd to the margins. And we've inadvertently said, with our actions, that you're not complete. That one day God will make you more complete with a spouse or a mate or a companion. And so we'll create space for those of you who are single to gather together and just be around each other. And so churches have large singles ministries and I was talking to some friends of mine that are staff at Red Rocks and some that are staff at Flatirons and they're just like, yeah, we're, we have the same database, right? And that's what the church kind of has done and so what we're doing the next three weeks is we're actually unpacking a really important uh, chapter of Paul. Paul is writing a Q&A. He's writing back some answers to some questions that the Corinthian church has about marriage, about singleness, about their status, about what to do and when to do it and all that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is, is that he's addressing both married people and unmarried people primarily. Okay, Listen primarily those who are unsatisfied with their present condition, their present status. Should I stay married? Should I get married? And Paul is addressing them because their situations have have become something that is a real focus for them. Now, the chances are, and there's always a chance, that you and I can deny, okay, that God is wise enough, that God is That knows what's best, he knows what's good enough to give me what's best, and that God is powerful enough to make what I have best. We have this ability in our lives to think that there's a preferable state other than the state I'm actually in. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Because I think if if we're not careful, if single people actually think that they well, you can idolize your singleness. You can actually idolize your singleness, and then few people actually, there's a few people that actually begin to see marriage as a cure for their loneliness. And not only do married people, like uh, married people have this problem too, they actually, they actually idolize their family. And we have it's very easy to do. And and then and few people who are married actually fantasize about not being married. And both are failing, okay? Both, both is a failure to find their identity in Christ first. So today we're going to t- concentrate on those who are unmarried. Next week we're going to talk about people who are married. Because I think these are really important I- issues for us to talk about openly, on- honestly, genuinely in the context of a community. Because Paul is writing this letter in the context of a community. He's not writing to individuals. He's not saying, hey, Hank. You asked me a question. No, the church brought these questions to Paul, and Paul is bringing his answers back to the church. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's very important for us to hear this. Our identity is not found in our marital status, it's found in our redemptive status. And Paul is writing to Christians, okay, who are. As he's already walked us through these last number of, of weeks, we've talked through this. You are bought with a price. You are washed. You are, you are justified. You are sanctified. These are all images of our present status. No matter if you're married, singled, divorced. Uh, doesn't matter if you're a widow. doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. You are a follower and an apprentice of Jesus first. That's what Paul's saying. And so he's trying to bring our head up. He's trying to lift our eyes up to the horizon a little bit. And Paul goes back and forth from married to single, back and forth throughout chapter 7. But what we're going to do is we're going to skip through. We're just going to look at the unmarried parts. You with me? Next one is this. Verse 28. Paul says, but if you do marry, okay? So remember he said, if you, you know, you're unmarried it would be preferable if you stay that way blah 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 and he says but if you do marry you have not sinned and if a virgin marries she has not sinned but those who marry will face many troubles in this life can i get an amen just kidding angie we, we're good um, and he says i want to spare you this he says this what i mean brothers and sisters is at the time Uh, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were, if it was not theirs to to keep. Those who use the things of the world as as if not engrossed in them for this world in its present form is passing away. What Paul is saying, he's not saying, if you're married, pretend like you're not. I mean, that would be bad, especially on Mother's Day, right? Um, He's saying, I want you to have a different perspective on how everything in your life works, okay? He's saying that... um, um, you, you know, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how far you go at mourning, how far you go at being happy. I mean, how, how much you just energy and time and effort and money you throw into these things that are going to be passing away. This is Paul's way of bringing, trying to orient their hearts and their minds around eternity, not just the things that are swirling around in their present their eyes on the horizon, okay? He's saying you were bought with a price, you serve a different king, you are are working towards a different outcome than most of the people around you are working. And Paul is drawing their hearts out of this present circumstance. He's saying, look up here. Put your eyes up here. There's a greater reality. There's a greater purpose. Live into that greater reality. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, undivided devotion to the Lord. See, when the Bible talks about the advantages of sing- singleness, it's going to lay two kind of advantages over the tops of our lives. First thing Paul does is says, hey, There's troubles in marriage. There's there's extra responsibility and extra effort and extra things you have to do if you're married. And one of the advantages of being single is you get to kind of bypass that. And I know that might sound to some of you like kind of lame, like he's totally bagging marriage. (laughs) I'm just saying, it's it's kind of a truth. Here's my illustration, and this is probably going to generate more hate mail to me than anything else I've said, Subarus or country music. Here's the thing. There are dog people and there are cat people, okay? What Paul is, and think of it in terms of this, dog people, here's the deal with dog people. You love your dog. Your dog's the best. It's your best friend, right? It 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 runs up to you when you come home. It greets you. But you have, once you are a dog person, your life changes. Your responsibilities go way up. Because dogs require more than cats. Dogs require you to let them out, take them for walks, feed them, pick up after. You know how many people walk by my house with bags of dog crap in the morning? Like, just like. Like, you have the best job ever, right? Because they've taken their dog for a walk. And their whole life is uh, as consumed with, oh, we've got to get home to let the dog out. Who's going to watch the dog? How are we going to live our lives with this new animal? And, and it's just taking up all of our time and our effort. I've got to take the dog to Home Depot, <laughs> right? Because it's lonely, And then my dog's got to sniff every other dog at Home Depot. it's just like, oh, it's so exhausting to be a dog owner. Just saying. I mean, I've been a dog owner, okay? You're like, don't hate unless you do it. I love dogs. I love your dogs. I'm just glad they're not my dogs. Now, cat people, we're free. We're free to leave and come home whenever we want. They don't care. Like they could care less. And some of you, here's the thing. Half of you claim to be allergic to cats. You're not. You just say it because you don't know what to do with a cat. You see a cat sitting there and they're looking at you and you're looking at it and you're totally like insecure. Like it's going to just rip your face off. So you tell people you're allergic, but I know you're a liar. There's only one person I know who's really allergic, and that's Terry, because I watched it happen. But here's the thing. You just, I mean, cat people can just get in their car and leave for the weekend. What Paul is saying is, I would prefer if you were cat people. Is that an overreach? (laughs) Theologically? I don't know. He's saying, here's the the deal. What he's saying is, is that the choices you make in relationship, you just need to understand. They might divide your heart and your loyalty. He's not saying if you're married, get divorced. He's not saying that. What he's trying to do is saying there is a kingdom and a mission and there's work to do I personally prefer to stay single so I can just throw my whole life into it. That's what Paul says. And for some people, that's that's really what they feel. And you've probably met people who maybe they're widowed or they're divorced or they've never been married and they just feel like God is just pulling their heart that way. You can have a broader, wider, more um, impactful scope in your life. That's what he's saying. And he's just saying that there's troubles that come. And so I'm married. I've been married for a long time, for 22 years almost. And there is something about, okay, how are we doing? How am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a dad? Uh, what are some things that I'm anxious about? What are, how am I cultivating my kids and, and our relationship? And, and you carry these anxieties as a married man and as a married woman, and, and, and you have these things in your life. They're just naturally there because you are married. And Paul is just encouraging them to everybody, married and unmarried, to lift your head up towards the horizon. And, and for married folks to say, you know what? We're going to decide to live differently. We're not going to idolize our marriage and our family. We're going to live differently. Our, our family and marriage are still very important. I'm not saying that. But that we're going to live with our eyes on the horizon. See, the Corinthian Christians experience life the same way we do. It's like a meat grinder for their time and their faith and faith. And and what Paul is saying is we have this promise of a rest-filled, beautiful future, and our lives are lived currently in a very broken world. And that there's this, he's saying our time is short. He's saying that not to say, like, apocalypse is coming, because that gets totally misinterpreted right there. He's saying our time is short, meaning in light of eternity, okay, Our time in this present world is very short, and yet if you look at our bank accounts and our time spent in our calendars and all of our things, it looks as if we spend less, give less, and and put less energy into the kingdom than into our present circumstance. And so, what Paul is saying, let's live radically different lives according to a radically different value because we know our time is short. Everything is temporal. We marry or we remain single or we celebrate or we suffer or we buy or we sell or always in the view of eternity. He says that your singleness is actually an advantage for living for eternity. eternity. So if your present condition is single, Paul says, that's okay. Maximize it. Like, if you're going to be single for two months or two years or the rest of your life, live undivided for the kingdom. So here's the thing. What I found... And I've done a lot of talking with people who are single or divorced or widow. And, and, and I've, I've actually, this is like a very intimidating message for me. One of the things that I found is the struggles of single people aren't different than the struggles of married people. They just have to deal with it in a different way. Two struggles. One that Paul mentions and I think one that he doesn't. One is sexual temptation. And we've been talking about the last few weeks Um, this idea, this lie, this pervasive lie that says that sexual expression and sexual experience is necessary, is absolutely critical and at the core of human flourishing that our culture tells us. And it's a pervasive and persistent lie, and we drink it in in every commercial, in every ad. I mean, we talked about it last week, that, that this idea of porneia, that is the word in, in Greek, is actually just screaming at us all the time. A guy, an author named Preston Sprinkle. Yeah, his name is... Anyhow. <laughs> that poor guy. I mean, he just gets it wherever he goes. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he gets married and he's like, can I have your last name? Yeah. Let's just go with yours. He says, <laughs> he talks about this whole idea of sexual expression actually began with Freud. And, and this idea that it's like ingrained in us. He, and and when, when Freud brought it out, it actually began to be celebrated in our culture. That what I need to be most fully alive is great sexual expression and great sexual experience. And that, that is something that the single crowd just, if you follow Jesus, if you are committed to apprenticing Jesus, you are just confronted with just a gale force, counter-cultural wind in your face. This is the air you breathe. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of times the lie is that Oh, if I just got married, that would take care of all the the, the sexual temptation and struggle I deal with. <laughs> married folks, is that true? Yeah. I know some of you are like, I don't want to answer. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. In fact, I think that one of the things that... Um, what is just wild, and when we, we didn't talk about this last couple weeks, is that the ache for sexual fulfillment, and some of you are like, this isn't a Mother's Day message. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> the ache for sexual fulfillment is actually something that points to a bigger, more holistic culmination. Turn it back on. Hey, it points to something way bigger in the future, okay? That something, something that our ache and our longing for Uh, sexual fulfillment is actually this angst that actually it's a longing that itself points to something that it is to come. And that is the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. That is something that points towards that. And so the reality is, is if you get married to solve your sexual temptation, chances are you're going to get divorced because of sexual temptation. Chances are that issue will actually re, reignite. Second thing is loneliness. And I think of singles who struggle with loneliness, and it's a very different way. But the lie is, is that getting married will solve my loneliness. That my spouse will complete me, right? Right? Like, like we've seen too many rom-coms and you know, all these different romantic stories, and it's just like, oh, if only I meet the one. There's not the one, okay? Just, sorry to spoiler alert. Uh, like, there, like, if only I meet, well, there is for me, but, I mean, uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, like this idea that you are going to just, you're going to meet this person and they are going to meet every emotional, spiritual, longing, need, and you're going to be buddies forever. And you're never going to experience loneliness again. Married people, is this true? You're afraid to say it. No, it's not true. It's not true. You can be married and lonely. We all experience loneliness. You you deal with it differently as a single person. But you have this opportunity to, to friendships and all these things. But I'm just saying that your spouse will not solve your loneliness. And here's the thing. If you get married thinking that your spouse will solve your loneliness, chances are you will get divorced because your spouse doesn't meet that. And you will go outside of that to find that longing fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. You're like, man, this is like the most downer Mother's Day message ever. It's not. I trust, trust me. When all is said and done, our loneliness, this ache inside of us, it points to the future. It points to the culmination of everything. That one day... God will pull us into his, his, his promised eternity, his promised kingdom. And it will, our, our, you know, it says no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. There will be no more loneliness. Now, there's, there's more than two things, I'm sure. But the idea behind what Paul is saying is this. I read a book recently called The Patient for Men. And The Patient for Men is a book where a guy, uh, a a Mennonite pastor, actually went back to all the early Christian writings. And he wanted to study what they talked about, what they wrote about. They called them treatises, okay? And they would pass these treatises, these teaching documents, throughout the, the, the Christian world. And one of the, he he realized as he's reading all of these, he's realizing there's a certain theme coming up, a certain theme coming up in every single one of these writings. They didn't talk about door-to-door evangelism. They didn't talk about church growth tactics. They didn't talk about political, uh, you know, marches. They didn't talk about any of that stuff. What they talked about the most was patience, treatise after treatise century after century, patience. And what he realized as he's reading all of these treatises was th- this idea of this, this undercurrent, of, like, of this habit of learning how to be patient, living a life of just quiet, faithful patience as a believer. And one of the writers was an early church father named Tertullian Tertullian. And Tertullian wrote this. Now, none of what I'm about to read you has anything to do with marriage. But I want you to think about what we're talking about, what Paul has been saying this whole time, and listen to this. He says, in poverty, patience supplies consolation. Upon wealth, it imposes moderation. The sick, it does not destroy. Nor does it for the man of health prolong his life for the man of faith for the man of faith patience is the source of delight it attracts the heathen it recommends the slave to his master the master to god it adorns a woman perfects a man it is loved in a child praised in a youth esteemed in the aged in both man and woman it is at every age of life it is exceedingly attractive So for Paul, what he's saying is, listen, I want you to trust that the condition that God has you in right now in this moment is not a waste. I want you to trust that where God has you actually might need some refocus. If you're single, I want you to focus on the fact that you can just give all of yourself right now to the kingdom that you can can encourage people, that you can can care for people, that you can pursue people, that you can pursue God's work in this world. For those of you who are married, we'll get to more of this next week, don't forget your ultimate mission. Now, for the marrieds in our room, I want to encourage us to become a church that doesn't push the unmarrieds to the side. Now, one of the things I love about this community is we're a pretty multi-generational church. Yes, we have a lot of kids running around, but we are a pretty multi-generational group, small group of people. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want to encourage you, groups, to like invite married people, invite single people into your community, single people. Don't be afraid to be a part of someone's life that is married for a few years. Maybe even they've been married for 30 years, 40 years. There's so much we can learn from each other as a community. There's so many ways we can encourage each other and root for each other and pray for each other in all these different seasons. Because remember, at the beginning of this series, I think it was like week one, maybe week two, we talked about what that word church meant. That word is a Greek word, ekklesia. Do you remember what it means? means the gathering of the called-out ones, okay? That's what this is, that God has separated us out, not because we're better than everybody else. No, no, no. God has set us aside for something he wants us to do together. Married, single, widowed, divorced, we're gathered. We're as called-out ones. And that is a beautiful thing You know, Jesus talked about his brothers and sisters and his family changing because of the kingdom. People asked, you know, people said, well, your brothers and sisters are here and your your mother's here. He's like, who are my brothers and my mother? Those who do the kingdom work. So marrieds, I want to encourage you to include them into your world. Single people, I want you to know that you, you are not forgotten, that God has a plan for you right now. And and don't let some of the messages that you've heard in the church community discourage you. We want you here. We're not trying to just set you up. We literally want you to flourish. You are 100% how God wants you to be now, not with anybody else. Does that make sense? Another quote from Preston Sprinkle, and then we're going to finish up. He says this, the good news about a single savior. You guys knew that, right? Jesus is single. He was single, right? You guys knew that, right? The good news about a single savior who provides abundant life for all who die with him. Jesus didn't view his celibacy as a no, a no to joy a note to sex, a note to intimacy, but rather he viewed it as a life-giving yes. Yes to relationships, yes to friends, yes to serving others, and yes to enjoying life to the fullest, okay? And so singles, you've not been forgotten. Keep your eye on the horizon.